I wonder how you would answer the question, what kind of pastor do you want to be? What are those hyphenated adjectives that you want to describe your pastoring? And I wonder how far removed you are from being that kind of pastor. Really good intentions, a really lofty aim, and do you find yourself struggling with just poor execution? And so the burden that I feel over the next few moments has been, what's the six steps? And here's the thing. I don't know the six steps to being a pastor whose shepherding is shaped by grace. But I do know that there is a vision of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that rivets the heart of a pastor that makes his shepherding soaked, sopping wet with grace that has flowed to him. Brothers, I can't tell you how many times I've, and sisters, sorry, I can't tell you how many times I've set through uh, times of preparation leading up to meetings, shepherding meetings, and I've thought, Lord, I want to be gracious. Like, I want to commend Christ. Uh, I want the aroma of my counsel to be Jesus-centered, and yet with those desires, I find myself going to, uh, is there an article that can help me? Is there a book I can pull off the shelf and flip through? Is there a chapter that served my soul? And praise God for articles and books and chapters. But I think I'm more and more convinced that the pastor who gives grace the best is the pastor who understands that he needs grace the most. And I wonder if you're convinced of that this morning. I mean, are you convinced that the, the gospel of grace that you hold out faithfully to others is what you're in need of most? For going to have shepherding that is flavored by, that is filled with, that's shaped by grace. And brothers, we have to be pastors, sisters, we have to be pastors' wives, we have to be worshipers who go often to that fountain, drink until we're satisfied, and let the banks of our river overflow with that satisfaction. And so, I showed up yesterday, I told Lance, I've kind of prepared two talks and he said, we'll give you double the, the time. Just kidding. And, uh, and I said, I, I think where my soul has been served as of late is not how does grace inform your preaching? How does grace inform your, your counseling? How does grace inform your leadership development? How does grace inform how you, And not to think compartmentally about those things. This morning, I want to put before you what I pray would be a compelling vision for why we need 
the glory of this God in the face of Jesus Christ, particularly seen in the hour of his glorification, and how us feasting at that fountain of grace will inform how we pastor from a place of satisfaction and being filled with grace. Michael Reeves begins his book, Rejoicing in Christ, this way. Jesus Christ, God's perfect Son, is the beloved of the Father, the song of the angels, the logic of creation, the great mystery of godliness, the bottomless spring of life, comfort, and joy. If we know Him rightly, we will find nothing so desirable, nothing so delightful as Him. Precious theological concepts meant to describe him and his works get treated as things in their own right. And when that happens, Christ becomes just another brick in the wall. But the center, the cornerstone, the jewel and the crown of Christianity is not an idea or a system or a thing. It's not even the gospel as such. It is Jesus Christ. Isaac Ambrose, in his work, Looking Unto Jesus, declares this, There is nothing so pleasing and comfortable, so animating and enlivening as Christ. Christ is the sum and the center of all revealed truths. Christ is the whole of man's happiness, the sun to enlighten him, the physician to heal him, the wall of fire to defend him, the, com- the friend to comfort him, the pearl to enrich him, the ark to shelter him, and the rock to sustain him under the heaviest pressures. He is the ladder between earth and heaven, the mediator between God and man, a mystery which the angels desire to look into. Ignatius, in his commentary on Ephesians, wrote this, Apart from Christ, let nothing dazzle you. Robert Murray McShane, writing advice to a friend, Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smile of God. Bask in His beams. Fill His all-seeing eye settled on you in love, and rest in His almighty arms. This is how McShane ended this letter. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and the excellency of Christ. John Calvin wrote, We are not supposed to seek in Christ something else than Christ himself. If I could summarize what Calvin just said, the greatest benefit to union with Christ is Christ. The Apostle Paul would write in Philippians chapter 3, He counts all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. The author of Hebrews labors in the first chapter to help us see that Jesus is the heir of all things. Through Him the Father made the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of His nature, who upholds all things by the word of His power. He made purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. He's the Son of the living God. He's the recipient of praises of the angels. His throne has, is everlasting. He loves righteousness. He hates 
lawlessness. He has been anointed with the oil of gladness. He laid the foundation of the world. Even in the heavens, even the heavens are the works of his hands. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His years have no end, and his enemies will be his footstool. And so here's my question. Do these reflections on the supremacy of our Savior, do they reveal your soul's fullness of Christ, or do they expose your soul's emptiness of Christ? And I want to be theologically accurate. I don't mean to imply that a Christian's soul can be void of the Spirit of our Savior. But what I am asking is, does your life and ministry contain overflowing banks of joy-filled satisfaction in this Savior? Or are you parched and dry as it pertains to satisfaction in Christ? And again, if I can provide clarity, I'm not asking how fruitful your ministry is. I'm just asking, is there a personal amazement at the author and the perfecter of your faith? And I'm rehearsing truths this morning that I've had to go back to over and over throughout my ministry because sadly I have worn paths that have been taking me to the broken cisterns of ministry to satisfy me at the neglect of feasting on Christ. Like I've known the disconnect of being given this precious privilege of heralding the glories of this Christ and yet having my heart unaffected by those precious glories. And so whether you're there this morning or you've come from there or you're unknowingly on your way there, I hope that just a quick meditation on 2 Corinthians will encourage your experience and your enjoyment of this Christ who is full of grace. And if your heart will be satisfied on Him, your ministry will be informed and will flow from it the grace that he provides. Your ministry will take the shape of grace. And so, uh, not an expositional sermon, though I would commend preaching expositionally on Sunday mornings. Uh, I would like to pray that God would be gracious. Lord, in these next few moments, would you just allow your word to give us a vision of your glory that would so arrest our souls, captivate our minds, and set us on a trajectory towards being shepherds whose ministries are marked by grace, are filled with grace. We need the grace that we commend to others. And so help us drink deeply, I pray. And for that to happen, would you allow this talk that is heard to be far more effective than the one I'm about to preach? Spirit, do your work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is it that gets the lion's share of your attention day in and day out? I mean, pastors, ministry leaders, we must give our attention to a spectrum of subjects on any given day. Preaching, church membership matters, counseling, missions, outreach, corporate gatherings, community groups, prayer. We would be negligent if we didn't give our attention to these matters. But these matters can't reign supreme. 
as it pertains to what takes up most of our attention. Uh, an often used illustration in the network that we're a part of, Treasure in Christ Together, is that these ministry matters are important because these ministry matters really do serve as prongs, like a ring. The purpose of prongs on a ring is to showcase the diamond. And so the end, the aim of the ring is not to have a beautiful set of prongs. It's to have a working and healthy set of prongs that are able to rightly showcase and display the glories of that diamond. And so think ministry matters are like the prongs. Christ is the diamond. And so we think ministry matters are important because we want to rightly showcase the glories and the riches of the diamond that is Christ. And so how then do we do this? Not by becoming fixated on matters of prongs, but on being fixated on the glories of the diamond. And so really I have one point this morning, and I, I, I trust there are multiple applications. I, I trust that maybe even in your conversations on the way home, conversations with elder teams, conversations with, with your spouse, conversations over lunch. We can begin to just mine out some of the applications. One point, it's this. Looking unto Jesus is what you need and what the saints that you pastor need most. Looking unto Jesus is what you need most. It's what the saints that you pastor needs most. And looking unto Jesus will help your life take the shape of grace that will then shape how you pastor others. You will have grace-shaped pastoring. And so if you, if you have your Bibles, you can flip to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's helpful for us to know 2 Corinthians chapter 3, a little bit about an interplay. We're walking through the book of Exodus at, at Covenant Life, and I'm personally studying ahead of where we're preaching and so getting to the end of Exodus, we're in Exodus 12, getting to the end of Exodus, Exodus chapter 32, I'm beginning to see some, some things and beginning to think about, oh wait, as I read Exodus 32, I think there's a connection to this picture of what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And so I think it's helpful for us to know the interplay of what's happening. Israel has just come out of Egypt in a miraculous fashion. They've come to Mount Sinai. Moses is away from them up upon upon the mountain, and this is what we read in Exodus chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this, this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a, a feast to the Lord. Moses' ministry, really up until this point, has been centered on encouraging 
the Israelites to remember their God. Remember God. Remember the one who has delivered you. Remember the one who has taken you out of slavery. And in the absence of such reminders, in the absence of such leadership, what do we find the people do in Exodus 32? They begin to go after what their hearts long for. They begin to to craft in their own image a false god, an idol that they can fashion and that they can control. And what's interesting is while they are doing this, while they're beholding the image of this false idol that they have crafted, Exodus chapter 33 verse 18 reminds us that Moses is beholding something different. Moses is up on the mountain, and Moses says to the Lord, Please show me your glory. Brother Pastor, seek the greater reward. Don't be fixated on little things that you can fashion and control. Seek the greater reward. Beg God to give you more and more glimpses of Him that you would behold Him. And what's the result? Well, if you keep reading, Exodus chapter 34, verse 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. He's radiant because he's been communing with his God. Brothers, how the churches that we serve need pastors who are radiant with the glory of God because of our communion with Him. And this will change, like we mentioned in the Q&A, this will change the scorecard of ministry success that we seek to play by. Because if this is what we believe that we need most, and this is what we believe the churches that we serve need most, then let us not neglect deep communion with this God. And so it's with this backdrop of Exodus chapters 32 through 34 that I come to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, And we all... With unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. As you and I behold, as you and I become fixated on the glory of the Lord, in many ways we are being shaped by Him that we might share in the glory that we see, that we might share in His life, in His character. Beholding Him, we actually become who we really are intended to be as humans. And so, brothers, it really does matter what it is that you behold. All throughout the Old Testament, Psalm 17, As for me, I behold your face in righteousness and be satisfied with your likeness. That's why the Lord says in Isaiah, 
Look to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. Look, look to the Lord. And, and so for us to feel the weight of this declaration in 3.18, that with an unveiled face, we're beholding the glory of God, being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, I think it's helpful for us to understand just the case that Paul's made leading up to this point. Paul argues at the beginning of chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul argues at the beginning that the proof of his ministry is not found in some commendation letter that he showed up with. The proof of his ministry is found in the changed lives of the Corinthians. We see that in verses 1 and 2. He understands Christ to have made him a minister of this new covenant, not a minister of the law that was written on the tablets. Think Moses, but a minister of this new covenant that's written on the human heart. Verses 3 through 6. And then in verses 7 through 11, Paul says, If Moses' face was radiant with glory, and the Israelites couldn't even look upon his face when he received the law, how much more the glory, the glory of the Spirit that doesn't fade away? And why doesn't that glory fade away? Like Moses, the, the glory that, uh, that consumed Moses, why does the glory of the Spirit not fade away? Because it's, it's a ministry of righteousness based on the work of Christ, not a ministry of condemnation based on the law. Ministry of righteousness based on the work of Christ, not a ministry of condemnation based on the law. And so the ministry of the law, do this, don't do this, that will have a glorious look to it because it is the words of God. Mm. But that ministry will not have the same power as the ministry of Christ, the gospel. Because Christ's work ushered in a better ministry, a better covenant. You see, Moses has one kind of glory, and all who are in Christ have another, altogether better kind of glory. And Paul's showing the contrast between law and gospel, between letter and spirit here, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. What you get with Moses and the law and what you get with Jesus and his gospel. And 2 Corinthians 3.16 says, And when we turn, when we turn from that law and we turn to Christ, the veil is removed. And this ought to be the flavor of our pastoring. Men who are turning to Christ and who are leading others to do the same. I just wonder, does that phrase, does it describe your preaching? Does it describe your counseling? Does it describe how you move towards those that are difficult? Men who are turning to Christ and who are leading others to do the same. We can hold out many things to our own hearts, to our own families, and to the churches that we serve. Brothers, I pray that we would be convinced, based on 2 Corinthians chapter 3, let's hold out supreme joy. And so just thinking about this, why is it then that this gospel has power that law doesn't have? 
Well, again, Exodus 33, 18 through 20, Moses says, please show me your glory. And what Moses sees, he sees the goodness of God. He sees his holy perfection. He sees his commitment to his people. But what Moses in Israel doesn't see in the law, we get to see in the very face of Christ. If you keep going in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul continues to talk, talk about this veiling and unveiling and his ministry. And we say, well, Moses heard that he couldn't see God's face. And then listen to what we get because of Christ. Verse 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Moses couldn't get it. And in Christ, we get it. We get to see His glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And if we're wanting to be pastors whose whose ministry and shepherding is shaped by grace, then we have to be pastors who are consumed with beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It just, I so appreciated how Steve began. Like We can conference ourselves all day, but until this is the heartbeat of our souls, the longing of our ministries, the aim of our life, then we're just, we're just playing games. The book that you, that you receive, brothers, we are not professionals. This is not a professionalization. Can we put on the show at the right time in front of the right people? This is, will we be dominated by this clear vision of this supreme, unrivaled Christ? And will that then flavor every aspect of our lives? Christ is the glory of God. And not only is he the glory of God, John tells us that we see his glory most clearly in the hour of his glorification. My mind goes to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21, Israel sins, God sends snakes and judgments, and many individuals begin to die. And the people come to Moses and they say, we have sinned. Is there any way that you can pray that the Lord would take away these serpents, these snakes? And so the Lord told Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole. And if you are bitten, then you may look to the serpent and live. And in John chapter 3, verse 13, interpreting that passage, John writes, all who believe in the Son of Man lifted up will have eternal life. They will be spared and saved from the wrath of judgment by beholding the one who is lifted up. Being infected with sin and having no escape from his judgment, God made a way. God made a way as the beaten and bloody body of Christ would writhe in pain on the cross, accomplishing redemption, accomplishing salvation. And when he's lifted up on the cross, we then see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in ways that we've never dreamed of. The perfections of his character on display at the cross. And it's the sight of the glory of God in that face that begins to tear and remove the veil.
that scatters the darkness. And so whatever it is that you do, whatever role you play, whatever station of life that you're in, make it the aim of your life to point people to that glory, the glory of God found in the face of Jesus Christ. That ought to be the flavor of our pastoring. I wonder, even this morning, if you see how beautiful and satisfying that God is. Are you convinced that there's glory to behold in a Savior who is crushed under the weight of wrath and judgment? This Savior dies to embrace you, to make you what you cannot be. And it doesn't matter how great your sin is. He delights in saving great sinners. Brothers, this is why you need this gospel of grace again and again and again. And this is why we ought to be one-trick ponies giving people this grace again and again and again. My Michael Reeves writes in his book, Rejoicing in Christ, there's more power in Christ's blood than in your sin. And so, brother pastor, your worth isn't in what you own. It's not in what you do. It's not in what you can accomplish. It's not in what you can grow. Your worth is in what Christ has done for you. Being a pastor doesn't lead you to become a grace graduate. No, being pastors means we deepen our dependency upon that grace. Right? Being a pastor presumes a gap between where you're gifted and what you're called to do. Brothers, don't make, don't make, I'm trying to even think of a proper adjective, don't make the shipwrecking mistake of trying to fill that gap with more of you. The fact that you're in ministry holding this office because of grace is not meant to be filled with more of you so that people would think highly of you. It's meant to be filled with more of Him so that people would look at you and would be amazed, not at how good you are, but at how powerful He is. And so, brothers, you're free from having to, to try to fill the gap with more of self. Make it your life's aim to fill the gap. And, and that isn't a license for laziness and a license for sin and a license for, for just being poor in our work ethic and, and not addressing areas of deficiency. No, but it is a freedom from thinking that every time you don't measure up, that somehow you've got to try to impress a little bit more. Christ is impressive enough. I, th I think we see this in, in Paul's words to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, in his words to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, where he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock. Keep a wo close watch on yourself and to those uh, and, and your teaching. 
for the benefit of your hearers. And so if I could just commend the practice of what the Puritans would call watchfulness of soul. Like if we want pastoring to be shaped and flavored by grace, then we have to be men who give attention to our souls. And so brothers, are you known? Right? Your sin will so deceive you to think that if you just keep a pulse on your own soul, that you'll be good. Are you known by others? Do you invite others in to know you? And are you honest with others? And here's the thing. The gospel really does free us up. It frees us up. The gospel already declares that you and I are far worse than we could ever imagine. And so then when I get into a relationship that's united in Christ, that's founded on this gospel, we don't have to play games about posturing as to who's better. The gospel has already said we're both not as good as we think we are. And so now I'm free in this relationship because of what I have in Christ and because of what the gospel has exposed, I'm now free then to go, okay, I need your help. Walk with me so that I would be consumed by this gospel and the grace that flows from it. And so give attention to your souls. Thomas Brooks, in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, would say, watchfulness is a waking and rousing up of the soul. It's a continual, careful observing of our hearts and our ways that we may still keep close to God and His Word. And so it may be helpful just to receive the encouragement to be vigilant over your own souls. And really the heartbeat of this, the glory that shines in the face of Jesus at this moment, the hour of His glorification. This is, this is at the core of how it is that we give attention to our souls. We keep coming back to this definitive act of being declared righteous before God because of the work of Christ, being united to Christ by faith, by the sheer grace of God, being bound to Christ through the Holy Spirit, so then that we would experience the overflow of love and joy that this triune God is experiencing. And so in Christ and through His Spirit and communion with the Father, we can know joy in ministry. We can know refreshment when the days are long. We can know encouragement when ministry is hard. That's available because Christ has lived perfectly unto God and died in the place of repentant and believing sinners, absorbing the wrath that was rightly due them, and then raising triumphantly from the dead. I would be amiss in this room to think there may be some who would say, you know what, Christ is just not attractive to me. It's as if there's this veil that is keeping me from beholding this glory. And I would just say, brothers, talk to someone. Sisters, talk to someone. Walk the way of repentance. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ, whether for the first time or whether for the 50th time today. May we soak in this gospel of grace that we commend to others 
And may it become precious to even our own souls so that it becomes a mark of our ministries. Remember that you are a sheep before you are a shepherd. And the means of grace that you preached that the sheep in your flock need are the same means of grace that you need. Brothers, you're not just a supplier of the means. You are dependent upon this God who gives grace through those means. And so your diligent care of your own soul and awareness will not just be how you survive ministry, it will be how you thrive. And your diligence to give care to your own soul will also be how the saints that you serve will, will blossom under the ministry of a pastor that is soaking in grace and who can't help but have everything that he does be informed by that grace. Friends, the sight of the glory of Christ in the face of Jesus, uh, the glory of God in the face of Christ, the hour of his justification, that's not just a sight that we want to hold up to those that are far from God and say, this is what you need in order to get in. It's the sight that, that those who belong to God, that they need to see again and again so that their faces would be radiant, so that their hearts would beat fervently for this Lord. Again, I can't commend rejoicing in Christ enough. Michael Reeves wrote, The glory of God in the face of Christ is like a sun rising on us in a winter morning. Like the turning of winter into spring. And he gives this illustration about uh, a snow a snow, and, and I'm probably going to butcher the illustration because it doesn't snow in Florida. But when it snows, they send out all of the salt trucks and they go out and they try to prepare the roads and they work for hours and hours and hours and yet oftentimes you get to the end of those hours and the roads are still pretty, pretty dangerous. But something happens. The sun comes out and in just a few hours, the snow is melted away. And I realize this is, you're probably going, no, that, that there's a lot of times where it's sunny and snow, I can't drive anywhere. Just for the sake of the illustration, this is what the glory of Christ does in the gospel. Where his light shines, the frost of sin melts away. And there's no need for us to take the shovels of our good works and to try to clear off the paths even in our own lives. Brothers, rest in the grace that God has provided. Put everything under His light. Look for Him in the Scriptures. Praise Him in the morning. Praise Him in the evenings. As you think about how you're going to counsel, look for Him in your counseling. Think about the ways in which you can, you can not just satisfy your own soul, yes and amen, but also that you can hold out this Christ so that the souls of those who are hurting would be satisfied in Him. You don't have to earn His love or forgiveness if you are in Christ. He's better. His work is better than yours. 
Walking with Him gives you more joy than when you walk in sin. And I love in Exodus 34, Moses doesn't even realize that his face is shining. Two weeks ago, I had the opportunity to sit down with Michael Reeves. I just said, Michael Reeves, I didn't call him, I didn't say that. I, I just said, I have a question. And he said, yes. So I didn't, I didn't say his name before my question. I said, for a church that's trying and a pastor that's trying to treasure Christ in what we do. What's the warning? And he said that you would be most consumed with the treasuring and not most enthralled with the Christ. That you would love the digging, that you would love the prizing, that you would love the feeling, and that you wouldn't love most the Christ. And I think about that as I read Exodus chapter 34. Moses comes down from the mountain, and this wasn't a forced radiance. He wasn't up there saying, how in the world do I become more radiant so that people know that I spent time with God? And brothers, in the ugliness of my sin, in the depths of my heart, there are times where I know, I know that my performance on just enjoying Jesus is low, and yet I want to look as though I enjoy Him more than I really do. And that's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to admit it's convicting because there is one who produces in us what I can't manufacture. I can't manufacture a perceived holiness. And if so, that is the worst reward. And so Exodus 34... Moses wasn't trying to look radiant. But as he looked, I saw this in Steve, as he looked upon the glory of God in the face of Jesus, he recognizes both how sinful and far he has to go. And yet that produces a humility that other people are drawn towards. This is what we were designed for. To behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And once we drink deep of the grace that is found there, we then begin to minister from the grace. And so, brother pastors, don't look unto your ministry. Don't look unto your counseling. Don't look unto your reputation. Don't look... Unto your resume, don't look. Unto your abilities. Brothers, look unto Jesus. Look unto Jesus to behold the glory of God. Be reminded of your need. And then let's help the churches that we serve do the same. He's worthy. He's worthy of that. I hope you're convinced. I'm assuming being in this room that at some measure you are. And so, brothers, I just want to commend you. 
this is not an easy aim to be grace-shaped in our pastoring, to be so consumed by the glory of God. It's not an easy aim, but it is a worthy aim. And so if you find yourself losing heart, talk to someone else. Pray with someone else before you leave. This Savior is worthy. And I pray that the saints that we serve and shepherd would feel that, and they would know. I just think, the legacy of my ministry, Lord, would you allow it to be? He ruthlessly pointed us to look unto Jesus. Let's pray. God, as we think about what is ours to behold, you are a God who has revealed, and in that is enough grace to consume us for the rest of our lives, to think you have made yourself known, but you've not just made yourself known, you've made yourself known most clearly. the hour of your glorification that we would behold your glory you've called us into ministry not because we did a good job of beholding your glory we don't need it anymore now we tell others now you've brought us into ministry to make even our ministries all about that glory And so may we be faithful to pastor from a place of deep need, not only for our souls, but a need to bring others along with us. May we not tire of pointing people to your glory. Encourage faint-hearted brothers this morning. Strengthen weak legs and arms this morning. Revive cold hearts this morning. Do it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.